We're talking about the Bible as the rule of faith and practice. The main theme of chapter 3 is how a believer can become more like Christ. And Paul started this chapter by demonstrating how that he had laid aside all of his personal accomplishments in order to focus on that goal. Anything that he was in himself and was nothing, and what he could be in Christ was everything. And so he started out uh, the chapter speaking about giving up his own accomplishments, and he comes down there a little bit further and he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And he said also, this one thing I do. The focus of his entire life was to reach that goal of conformity to Christ. The goal is what he kept striving for, The prize that he speaks about is what he would obtain, and the goal and the prize are one and the same thing. It's just that the goal is what we strive for in this life, and the prize is what we reach in the afterlife. Both of those are conformity to Christ. Paul knew that he wouldn't reach perfection here, but he never stopped pursuing that. And he knew that when he left this life that he would be glorified and he would be made like the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read just a little bit further from where we are tonight and look at verse number 21, you would see that that's Paul's expectation and knew that it would happen. So the task before Paul is to teach the Philippians how to pursue the goal in the way that he did. They had to lay aside their personal ambitions and they needed to look to Christ. So the purpose of those last three messages that I preached on the rule of faith and practice was to show us that the infallible guide to doing God's will, to glorifying God, to becoming like Christ is the Word of God. The Bible is our rule of faith and practice. It's what defines Christianity. It tells us what God's will is, and it explains to us how we pursue that goal of being like Christ. So now we come to verses 17 through 19, and here Paul gives a demonstration. There's a Chinese proverb, that old proverb that says that a picture is worth a thousand words. And so this is what Paul does here. He gives them a picture. He gives them something that they can look at. And so he says, if you're confused about this, if you don't know how to go about this, how can you be like Christ? Well, I have an example for you. And the example that he would use was himself. He says, my life is your demonstration. So let's read this in Paul's own words. If you'd stand with me, please. We're looking at Philippians chapter 3, and we'll start reading at verse number 17. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for those who are here tonight. Bless us as we look into your word. Open it before us so that we might understand how we can be just better Christians and closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon tonight is Mark the Messenger. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an ensample. We've discussed on several different occasions how that Paul was unashamed to use himself as an example. Paul was a very humble person, but it doesn't really seem like uh, an act of humility that Paul would point to himself and he would say, I'm an example that you can follow. 
But here is really something that is spoken in honesty. It's spoken under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't say, follow me because I'm so great. But he, he wants them to follow him and use him as an example because the Holy Spirit had enabled his life to be an example. Now, this evening, as we look at these verses, I, I'm going to put pressure on myself primarily, but I'm also going to put a little bit of pressure on leaders in the church. And that's because we have a responsibility of being examples for others to follow. You see, God has set a standard for us. There's a standard for ministers. The standards we find are in 1 Timothy and also in Titus. And they're very stringent requirements. Then also in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it gives us some information about workmen that are approved. It's a high standard that we are to live by. And if we live by that standard, then ministers, workmen, will be good examples for the flock to follow. Now, in these verses, we see that there's a contrast. There are really two different types of messengers to be marked, and they're to be marked for different purposes. One is a messenger that we are to follow and we're to be like, and the other is a messenger or an example that we are to avoid. So tonight, we're going to talk about the first type of messenger. And Berean Baptist Church, as in all churches, there are some people that you can follow after that are good examples, And there are also some people that are bad examples that you don't want to follow after. I'm sorry to say about the latter that we have those kinds of people, but in fact we do. So we're going to look at tonight in the first part of this sermon, the examples to aspire to. Now the examples that we look at in our Christian lives are not perfect people. And Paul didn't call himself an example because he thought that he was perfect. And he's not saying, follow me because I'm the absolutely perfect person. He says himself that I have not attained to perfection, but what he did show them was a man that was working on his imperfections and one who could show them how they could overcome theirs. So he doesn't say, I am perfect. And the clearest statement of the way that Paul really thought about himself is what we find in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. He says there, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And you'll notice there that Paul does not say, I was the chief of sinners, but then I got saved. No, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Have you ever wondered why Paul would say that? I mean, aren't there worse sinners? I mean, couldn't he pick out somebody who would be a a far worse example than he would be and Call that person a great sinner? Is the person who is the greatest sinner, is that the one who doesn't know Christ and commits all kinds of atrocious acts of violence against God's people? Well, evidently Paul didn't think so, because I think he means here that the chief of sinners is one who knows Christ, one who has been commissioned by Christ, one who has responsibility towards others, that when that person fails to live in a Christ-like way, when he has sinned in his life, And he has the potential to influence many, many people adversely. And so a person who teaches others the word of God has to be acutely aware of his own sinfulness. Now, didn't John, or excuse me, James say in James 3, verse 1, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. And so there is greater condemnation upon those who handle the word of God and those who have been put into the leadership of the church. They have to be examples for others to follow. 
Now, that's a sobering thought for us, because if you're put in front of people, if there are people that look to you, then you had better be where you should be. You had better be the kind of person you ought to be, because the weight of condemnation is upon you. Now, that's what Paul labored under. I mean, you just think about all the people that Paul, Paul's life affected. When he talked about his struggles and he talked about the persecutions that he went through, he explained that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he put on top of it this. He said, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. And so the care of all the churches was on his shoulders, and that was a tremendous weight of responsibility. What, what happens if he fails? I mean, what happens if Paul is a bad example? Well, humanly speaking... Uh, the cause of Christ would be set back hundreds of years, perhaps even thousands. And that's because Paul was Christianity's chief proponent. You see, what you do and how you live has its own sphere of influence. Every single Christian has a sphere of influence. Now, the leadership of the church, of course, has one that may be greater than yours, but you also have it, even if you're not in leadership. There are people that you influence. But leadership is really where I want to go with this because we're the ones who are first to set the example and then those who follow us also become examples. And so where we lead people is the same place that other people are going to lead other people. And so we have to be the right influence. So what are some of the characteristics of a good example, a leader in the church? Well, I think first we would use this. We would say fidelity. Fidelity, faithfulness is a characteristic of a good example. See, the dependability to, to be where you should be in your place of service, that's certainly a huge part of this. I mean, to be an example, you have to be an example that can be seen. I mean, you have to be where you should be. I mean, faithfulness to your duties in the church, faithfulness in your Sunday school class, faithfulness to be in choir practice, faithfulness to fill your spot where God has put you, where he wants you to work, not laying down on the job, that's certainly an important part of being an example. But I don't really want to dwell on that particular part because if you don't do those things, you ought not to be in leadership. I mean, you should respectfully decline because you don't want to be a bad example. Leadership comes under greater scrutiny. It comes under greater condemnation. And let me add to that, if you get angry because there are people who scrutinize you, you shouldn't be in leadership either. I mean, don't get upset when somebody points out your inconsistencies or, or asks you why you do what you do. If you don't have the fortitude to withstand the scrutiny of people, you can't be in leadership. I mean, you have to have the toughness of, of skin. You have to be the person who's doing the right thing. You have to be able to answer people's questions. But I want to talk about something that's even more important than that. And that is there must be fidelity to the Word of God. The minister has to make God's Word his chief priority. The rule of faith and practice is the thing that guides us into the will of God, so there has to be utmost faithfulness to preach the Word of God in truth. And so there has to be this unwillingness to compromise God's Word, to compromise truth. You see, there has to be a desire in that person's heart to speak God's Word without reservation, without holding back. And that means when you have to get up and preach or you have to tell people about themes that are unpopular, things that are uncomfortable, you don't hold back. You just keep on telling it just like it is. And the problem today is that preachers and churches have decided that fun is more important than fidelity. 
popularity is more important than penance. And so what churches have done and preachers have done is to substitute the demeaning sensuality of the flesh for the demanding salvation that Christ says that we must have. So what do we do? Churches do. They give people what they want. Make church comfortable. Don't make it convicting. Now, friends, when you look for a preacher look, and you look for a church, look for one that is faithful to the Word of God. Look for one that makes the Bible its highest priority. Look for a preacher that when he gets up to preach, that he opens up the Word of God, that he preaches from that, he looks to Christ, he holds up Christ. There is nothing else more important than preaching from the Holy Scriptures. And so that means that when a preacher gets up to preach, he may preach on the love of God, but he also ought not to be afraid to preach about the wrath of God because that is equally true. So mark the messenger, mark the one who's true to the text of the word, someone who doesn't flit and flirt around with dialogue that's popular today. Now today it's popular to use that word dialogue. Let's get into a conversation, people say. Let's join into the conversation. Uh, Let's be inclusive of all different kinds of ideas. Don't be narrow, don't be constricted in what you teach. Look for the validity and other points of view. Folks, the pulpit is not the place to entertain other points of view. The pulpit is the place for declaring the unadulterated word of God. You know, it's also popular uh, today to make preaching a discussion. Let's get friendly with one another. Let's get acquainted with one another. Let's be intimate. Let's just sort of talk about things. Give me your feedback. How do you really feel about this? Preaching is a declaration of the word. This isn't time for you to give me your opinions, and you won't stand up here in Brian Baptist Church and say, well, here's what I think about that. You know, it grates on me to, to see preachers that are standing in pulpits and they dress lazily, they speak lazily, they speak half-heartedly, there's no clarity, they're milky, they speak with no authority. You sit under a man that tells you the truth, and when the truth hurts, it hurts, so What? If it makes demands on you that are difficult and are hard to do, keep on preaching it because that's exactly what Christ preached. It's not easy. You know, we're preaching today that following Christ is easy, that following Christ means that all of your felt needs are going to be met. Being a Christian is simply a matter of letting Jesus come into your heart. i got news for you. Jesus doesn't wait for you to do anything. Christ comes into the heart that doesn't want him because there is no person who really wants Christ. There is no person who's going to let Jesus come into their heart because the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. But we've heard this so long, it's been preached so long, that Jesus is begging to be your Savior. Won't you please, please let Jesus save you? Oh, please, don't be so mean to Jesus. He loves you and he just can't wait to make you his child. Neither Jesus nor the apostles ever preached such a Savior, folks. Jesus is the Lord. He goes where he wants to go. He stays where he wants to stay. And the Scriptures say that before you'll ever come to Christ, you must be drawn to him. That's what Jesus said in John six forty four. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Now, I would challenge you sometime to look up that word draw in a Greek lexicon, and you'll find out that the word actually means to drag. That's the meaning of it. It doesn't mean persuasion. It doesn't mean preaching and making a good argument so that people think it over and become convinced. 
Now, also, the word doesn't mean to come forcibly either, but what it does mean, it means to be overwhelmed. It means to be changed in the will. It means to be made willing to come. Now, folks, find some preachers that will preach like that, that give the glory to God, and they don't pat themselves on the back and pat people on the back because they made such a good choice. Now, Paul was an example of staying faithful to the word, faithful to the teachings of Jesus. It was Paul who had no trouble at all speaking the words of God when he said, when God said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. You know, everybody else has trouble with that. Paul had no trouble with it. Paul said in Romans 9, 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, on whom he will, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Lots of preachers stay away from that ninth chapter of Romans because they want to soften the blow. They think that they have to vindicate God or as if God needs some kind of defending. But Paul just summed it all up in, in the 20th and 21st verses by saying, Nay, O man, but who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay to make, one, to, to, to make the same lump to one, one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? God's the one who's in control. Find some preachers who preach like that. Mark them. Follow them. Because those are the preachers that are telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, let's move on to another characteristic of a good example. What, what kind of examples do you follow? Well, secondly, those with piety. What is a pious person? Well, a person is marked by piety when he's devout. He's a reverent person. He, he has a determination to be godly. A person who is a person of piety is the same worshipful person on Monday that he is on Sunday. Now, who could describe this kind of person better than Jesus. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been preaching about it, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Early in my ministry as a young man, I, I became very interested in the Puritans. The word Puritan comes from the Latin word purus, which means purity. The Puritans were devout. They were very pious people and and they were disciplined in their private lives and in their public lives. But it's interesting today that whenever you see the word Puritan, today, puritanical, Puritan, that is a demeaning word. It means prudish. There's one dictionary that I looked up the meaning, see what they had to say about puritanical, and they used this slang term, stick in the mud. Some use terms like goody two-shoes. That's how you describe it. And it's as if... Being pure and holy is a despicable thing. It's an undesirable thing to be a holy person. But I think Paul would have worn that moniker puritanical with aplomb. I mean, he was an example of piety. Because his words right here in this chapter describe it. He said, this one thing I do. That's devotion. I mean, that's singularity of focus. That's not deviation from the main thing that has to be done. So there's devotion to worship and there's devotion in his service. Now, in every church that you go to, you're, you're going to find people, some people that aren't devoted. There are some people that are play-acting. There are some people that go through all the motions of, of being a Christian, and they really don't have any dedication to God. And I realize that happens. I mean, we would love it if every single member of Berean Baptist Church was as devoted as a Paul, a Peter, or a John. We'd love to have that. But it, should it throw us off stride because there are some who aren't? 
I mean, isn't that the very problem in Philippi? I mean, isn't this why Paul is going through this whole thing, this whole discourse about examples? So the thing to do is to be a good example. Mark, good examples, follow them. If the preaching from the pulpit is true to the Word of God, follow that and then become an example yourself for other weaker Christians to follow. Don't worry about whether somebody else is doing it or not doing it. What are you doing? Can people follow you? Are you the example that can show them how they are to live? So worship God devotedly. Serve God devotedly. Be a pious person every single day of the week. And as Jesus says again in the Sermon on the Mount, let people see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, very closely related to piety, and really a part of it, is the next characteristic, and this is morality. Another term that's used as a synonym for puritanical is holier than thou. You've heard the term, holier than thou. Holiness is not popular. I mean, the world despises holiness because holiness is an automatic separator. Holiness is an identifier. It it makes people uncomfortable. And with a world that's steeped in sin, where every single person born into this world has a way of life that is against God... And those who don't know Christ, which is the majority of people in the world, they're not going to like holiness. It's not going to be popular. And morality is simply not where the world is headed. And so when a holy person comes along, that person sticks out like a sore thumb. And and so people become uncomfortable with it. We're not here to make people comfortable in their sin. Sin destroys. Sin is the whole reason why there is a hell. So why do we want to be a church that makes people comfortable with any lifestyle that they choose to live. But listen to what's being said today. Listen to the kind of words that are being tossed around from pulpits. People who call themselves Christians, what are they saying? Well, we've got to be tolerant. Tolerance, diversity, those are the buzzwords. And so if you're a church that is intolerant, if you're a church that's undiversified about morality, then you're labeled a hate monger. But isn't that what fidelity is also about? I mean, when Jesus said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, isn't that kind of cutting down on diversity? I mean, wouldn't you say that that's ruling out a whole lot of options? Well, let's go back here to morality. One of the definitions of righteousness is morality. It's adherence to a standard of morality. And pure righteousness in the eyes of God is his standard of morality. I mean, he accepts nothing less than Christ's morality. So as we're preaching on Sunday, we have to have Christ's righteousness because the Scripture says in him was no sin. There was no guile found in him. Listen to how Peter states this. He says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. So what Paul is doing in an area where there's great immorality, he's setting an example to follow. There's an example of how to overcome temptation. And ministers are tempted. I mean, I can imagine that Paul ran up against a lot of temptation. And really, the minister, leadership in the church, the devil works harder against you than anybody else. He's trying to make you fall. He's trying to make you a bad example. And so... You're going to run into a lot of temptation. And Paul did. And when he went to preach in places like Corinth, there were temple prostitutes there. There were sexual orgies going on. That was a part of their worship. Same thing was true in the city of Ephesus. 
And he wrote to young Timothy, who was the pastor of that church, and he told him, watch out for this. Be careful about it. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So you have to watch out for that. It's around you. The devil's going to tempt you. Now, what these people could see in Paul is an example of someone who met temptations around every corner, and yet he learned how to stay away from those things. He learned how to turn his eyes away from it because his singular focus, again, is Christ and keeping his mind filled with the things of Christ and not with the things of the world. And that is a grave problem for all of us today. We're exposed. There's all kinds of easy accessibility just to just about every deviant thing that's imaginable. I mean, if you can think of it, it's out there. And probably maybe I shouldn't even say it like that. Things you can't even imagine are out there. If anybody's ever thought of it anyway, you can probably go to a website that will describe it for you. So overcoming temptation is not an easy thing. And I don't pretend to tell you that it's easy. But there are some who have fought that battle and are winning the battle. And those are people that are good examples to look to about how to overcome temptation. Now, there is a way to fight this. There is a moral standard that God demands that we live by. So what we have to do is keep immorality out of the church. And what does that mean? Well, it means we have to, we have to stay away from and not permit deviant lifestyles in our church. We can't be conformed to the image of Christ and entertain the filth of the world. Now, I might also add that leadership certainly ought not to ever be guilty of dressing provocatively. You ought not to be showing skin that shouldn't be seen. You know, I've developed a, a habit when I'm preaching of looking over the heads of people as I preach. And probably some of you notice I very seldom look people directly in the eye as I'm preaching. Maybe that's a bad thing, I don't know. But I try not to focus on what people are doing. And, and that's good on several different levels because if I focus, I see a lot of people sleeping and that can be distracting. I even had somebody the other day who, who came to me and apologized for me to me for sleeping in church. And he said, Pastor, I'm just so ashamed that I've been taking medication. Uh, I know that you saw me fall asleep in church. And I said, well, you know, I appreciate the confession, but I never would have known unless you came and told me. Because I, I don't focus on that. Now, don't think that you can fall asleep because I'm not going to focus on it because I'll probably catch you. But what I've learned to do, though is to, you know, look over people's heads because there's a lot of distracting things that go on in church. I've had people tell me they can't sit on the back row because there's so much going on in front of them. And they say, how do you preach? How, how do you stay focused? I mean, how do you keep from getting distracted? How can you even think what you're supposed to say? Well, I have my secret. I don't look at it. I look over everybody's heads. But I do remember that there was one time that there was a lady who sat right over here on the front row of the church and with all she was showing, it was hard not to charge admission, but it became very distracting. So, you know, I just had to learn to look over heads. And I, and I would tell you ladies, don't be a stumbling block to someone. Don't, don't put a stumbling block in somebody's way because of the way that you dress. Don't be someone who causes impure thoughts by the way that you come to church. Believe me, I, I've heard a lot of excuses about this. I've heard some ladies say, well, it's their fault. They shouldn't have been looking. It's their fault. And then I've heard some ladies say it this way. Well, I just didn't even realize it. I didn't even know. I had no intention. And I wasn't born yesterday. 
On Sundays especially, I know this, that when people get dressed for church, what do you do? You go to the mirror. Anybody here would confess? I, mean, I never look at a mirror before I get ready to go to church on Sunday. All of us go to the mirror. Why do we do that? Do we do that to see what we're going to see? Of course not. We go to the mirror to see what everybody else is going to see. And so, when I come to church, I mean, how do I choose my clothing? Well, as, as the minister, you know, I, I stand up here and I, and, I, and I put a suit on or like I'm dressed tonight because I'm concerned about what you see when you see me. I mean, do you see somebody who thinks there is some seriousness in what I do? By the clothing that I wear, do you think that, well, he's got an idea that he's got a very serious job preaching the Word of God? I mean, that's a reflection of my attitude. And if it's not a reflection of my attitude, next week I'll come in my bathrobe and my house slippers and preach like that and then see what you think. You see, what you wear tells where your mind is. Now, a few weeks ago, I went to a church, uh, church service on a Friday night. And the pastor got up in an old shirt, some dingy blue jeans, and some sports shoes of some kind. And, and my remark was, the first thing I thought of, that guy rolled down the hill behind the church before he got in here or something. But he got up to preach like that. And, and you know something? I began to look around the church, and I saw that the church reflected his attitude. The place was filthy. The place was dingy. It was torn up. There was no respect for the things of God. And I think that a minister can foster that kind of attitude by how he looks and acts. Now, that's a little bit off track of the sermon maybe tonight, but clothing reflects your mindset. It can speak something about your morality. It tells something about your heart. If you wear the wrong things, dress the wrong way, wear provocative, revealing clothing, it tells you what you're thinking. So don't be a bad example. Don't be guilty of throwing somebody off track in their quest for Christ because right here in the Word of God, it tells you there is further condemnation upon you if you do. Now, there's one other characteristic that I want to bring up tonight before we finish part one of the message, and this is the characteristic of sacrifice. You know, I believe that there are many, many more things that we could go into to talk about how you're a good example. I I could tell you about displaying all the fruits of the Spirit. and Maybe that's the way we should go in the message. Maybe I should have chosen to preach from Galatians 5 and verse 22 and just talk to you about the fruits of the Spirit. But I think that that the things that we're talking about here tonight are going to be present in a person who has the fruits of the Spirit. But I particularly want to mention this characteristic of being sacrificial because this really speaks the heart of Paul. How did he really feel about the people that he ministered to? Being a sacrificial person means that you put the welfare of others first. And this Philippian letter is really a good case in point. I mean, where do we find Paul as he writes this letter? He's a prisoner of Rome. Why? I mean, why is he a prisoner? Had he broken any laws? No. Had he been justly tried and and found guilty of some offense? No. Why, Why is he in prison? Well, for one thing. Well, maybe two things. He's there because guilty, vile men wanted to put him there. That satisfied them to do it. But primarily, he is in prison for one thing, and that is preaching the word of God. You see, to get the Word of God out, what you have to do, you have to sow a lot of seeds. You have to preach to a lot of different people. You have to cast that seed out there for the ones in whom God is going to make the Word effectual. And when you do that, you very often 
spread some seeds that are going to fall on stony ground. People are not going to like it. People are going to hate the Word of God, and they'll try to do some things to you. And, and again, uh, I mean, I can't help but think about our Sunday morning series as we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll get to that, one of the Beatitudes. You're going to be persecuted. I mean, if you stand up for God, if you live like a Christian, if you're a righteous, holy person, you will be persecuted in some form or another. Maybe they won't cut your fingers off or pull your fingernails out or something like that, but there are forms of persecution for those who follow the Lord. But Paul was one who knew exactly where the Word of God would take him to preach God's Word as God would have him preach it, to stand up there against people that have all types of different immorality, all things, these things that are going on in their lives, and tell them that they're sinners and tell them that they need Jesus Christ, they must turn to God. He knew exactly where that was going to lead him. And so he preached anyway. It caused him to sacrifice freedom. You know, I was talking about the Puritans for just, uh, just a moment ago. Many of the Puritan preachers ended up in prison. You know why? Because the government passed a law called the Act of Uniformity. And I'm talking about in England at this point. But they passed a law called the Act of Uniformity. And what it basically did was tell them what they could preach from their pulpits and tell them how the services were to be run. And so many of the Puritan preachers simply would not do it. Most of them wouldn't do it. And so many of them were thrown into prison. See, the willingness of Paul to go to prison for the truth, that is a good example to follow. And that's because... He's doing nothing short but trying of trying to be conformed to Christ. And what did Christ do? Well, Christ sacrificed, didn't he? I mean, look what happened to him. He sacrificed his life for his people. And to be a good minister, to be a good leader, to be a good example, you have to be someone who puts yourself aside and you'll do what's best for others. Self-sacrifice is the cure for bickering in a church. It's a cure for all the petty differences that we have. It's a cure for all the preferences that we think that we have to live by that are outside the Word of God that we accuse others of not doing what we think they ought to be doing. It's a cure for all of that. Esteem others better than yourselves. That's what Paul taught in chapter 2 of this book. He said, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. That requires sacrifice. So what Paul is doing here, he's showing his example. He's showing the method that he used to pursue the goal of being like Christ. And here it is, fidelity, piety, morality, sacrifice. And to do less than that is really sin. Because it means that you're going to be held accountable for greater condemnation if you lead people off in the wrong direction. Now, there's another thing that we notice here as we wrap it up right quickly. Being an example is not Paul's suggestion. It's the command. It's the command of Christ. It's an imperative. Jesus said, or Paul said, first be ye followers together of me. And then Jesus also said, he that taketh up not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. We don't have a choice in this. Either we're going to be a good example or we're going to be a bad example. We don't have a choice. It's going to be one or the other. And to be worthy of Christ, he says, you must take up that cross and follow him. And that means going where he goes and doing what he does. And if you will do that, then you will be a good example to follow. Just like Peter said, he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. So Paul says, look for those good examples. Look for people 
that are living their lives pursuing the goal of being conformed to Christ. Look at their lives and follow after them. Mark them as an example and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spend together tonight. We just ask you, Lord, that you would bless our people. Help us to be a holy people, righteous people. Not, Lord, in in any sense holier than thou, that we take pride in what we do and how we live because we know our only sufficiency is of you. Lord, help us not to look down on others, but to help others. Help other Christians in our church, not with a judgmental attitude, but with an attitude that we want to help them to be the kind of Christians they need to be so they can follow Christ and be rewarded for living a life that they should live. Lord, we just thank you for our people. Thank you for those who've come tonight. Bless this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.